You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. All right, so I'm going to give you a crash course in interior examination in the next 26, 7 minutes. So you're going to need your Bible, something to write on, something to write with. This is a particularly, this is one you particularly need to write uh, with because I'm giving you a lot of notes. If we said after the first service, this is kind of a, really should have been a four-part series, but we're going to get it in 26 or 7 minutes. So take a lot of notes. Um, we're going to be in Psalm 139. I read the center part of that psalm during our prayer time. We're going to tackle the first and the last parts of that psalm. This month we're walking through a series of messages called The Deeply Formed Life, written by, uh, I mean, um, excuse me, inspired by a book by that same name by Rich Velotis, the pastor of New Life Church in New York. We're beginning to pick up a common theme as we walk through these uh, different weeks and themes. The deeply formed, spirit-shaped life is all about learning to listen. So Velotis writes, the contemplative way, that was where we started two weeks ago, the contemplative way is about listening deeply to God. The way of reconciliation, that was last week, is about listening deeply to each other. And this week we're talking about the way of interior examination, that's about listening deeply to ourselves. God wants us to learn how to listen. In fact, that line God wants us to learn how to listen is not just a, probably a, uh, the summary line for, this, for today, it's really a summary line for the whole series. God wants us to learn how to listen. As a graduation Sunday theme, I could not pick a better topic if I tried. I can tell you graduates that there's no skill that will serve you better than this one. Learning how to listen to God, to each other, to your own inner workings and truer motives. There's no better way to pursue the wisdom of God and the heart of God within yourself than to, or to develop the heart of God within yourself than to learn how to listen. God wants us to learn how to listen. And that's the message of Psalm 139. So it's one, of those, it's one of those anchors in the Bible that steadies me, Psalm 139. So I find myself back here in the psalm over and over. So if you feel like you've heard this before, it's because you probably have. Psalm 139, David, is the, is, he, he's the guy who wrote most of the psalms in the Old Testament. He is such a good example of transparent self-examination. And he really summarizes it all right here in Psalm 139. He's not navel-gazing. He's also not stuffing his emotions, certainly not in front of God. That wouldn't be David's way. And he's not a wimp. And I feel like I need to say that because sometimes David sounds like a whiner, sounds like a Debbie Downer. But we know David to be a warrior, a leader among men, a king. He's anything but wimpy. And yet David was also wise and discerning, a feeler, a man of prayer, honest, with God, unafraid of God's feelings about him. So we don't hear David ignoring reality so much as constantly hungering for what is most real, what is most true, even if that truth is painful. Knowing that God knows us was for David both freedom and strength. 
So from Psalm 139, David teaches us that God knows. Those two, those two words summarize the whole psalm. God knows. It's an incredibly freeing and healing truth. God knows us, which means that as we listen, God will show us us. I can't ignore self in the pursuit of God because it's only as I know myself that I know what God knows me to be, what I'm capable of, what I'm, how I'm made, what his plan is for me. And this kind of knowing requires me to learn how to listen. God wants us to learn how to listen. So listen together at Psalm 139. I'm just going to read the first 12 verses. And, and, and I want to say this about Psalm 139. It begins and ends with a search. I find that interesting. Evidently, this is the whole thing for, for, for David. He just wants God to search him. So he says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. That's a great Give for those of you who think, if God only knew. God knows. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. And if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. This is Great news for those of us who feel invisible, unheard, unappreciated, unknown, lonely, questioning the point of our lives. The great news is that somebody knows us. We are not invisible, unheard, unappreciated, unknown. The one who made us knows us. Come on, friends. That's a great gift. And verse 10 is for those of us who feel alone or or inadequate or paralyzed. Even there, the psalmist says, your hand guides me. Your right hand holds me fast. Psalm 139 is an assurance that God has got us, that he has held on to us, is holding on to us, will hold on to us through an uncertain future. And from that place of assurance... David's response is to lay himself bare. He just lays himself out in front of God and says, this is verse uh, 23. So go to the very end of Psalm 139. Verse 23 says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and see if there's anything wicked in me. What's the next line? I can't get it all of a sudden. Test me and know, sorry, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. That's what I meant to say. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way that leads to life everlasting. God, root out anything, anything in me that has become a filter that keeps me from hearing what you want me to hear, that keeps me from hearing what is most true, that keeps me from hearing Search me, God. Teach me who I am. 
Search me, God, and know my heart. This is spiritual discipline of interior examination. It's learning how to listen to God about ourselves. And we do it not because we love navel-gazing. We do it because it's only as we find peace with ourselves that we can learn to love others without needing from them what only God can give. Does that make sense? So Velotis says, interior examination is a way of life that considers the realities of our inner world for the sake of our own flourishing and the call to love well. It is as we know ourselves that we're able to get over ourselves and begin to love other people well without agenda. Does that make sense? Yeah. So when we look inside, what are we looking for? We're looking for what God sees. And for places that, d- that didn't get developed early on. That's what we're looking for. That, that, that need Places that are underdeveloped, that need healing, so we're no longer responding to life from an underdeveloped place. This is a big reason why we dig. We go looking for better responses to life. So when we look inside, when we sit before God and ask him to search us and know us and help us to know ourselves, what are we looking for? For starters, we, uh, we examine our feelings. David says, test me and know my anxious thoughts. That's his prayer. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. So why do we need to pay attention to our feelings? After all, feelings are not fact, right? I mean, won't our feelings just jerk us around and make us believe things about ourselves and the world that aren't true? Well, sometimes, yes, but that's exactly why we examine them. <laughs> Because to ignore our feelings is to let the lies live. Often our immature, malformed feelings, our our defensive and reactionary feelings are born out of the lies that were spoken into our lives early on. Does this make sense? So to sit in our feelings in the presence of God, and that's the key here. We're not not wallowing in our junk or or, or whining about what we don't have. The the spiritual discipline of interior examination is to sit with our feelings in the presence of God. Even better with a journal so we can listen both to what our insides are telling us and what God is saying about our insides so we can acknowledge what is true about our feelings and what isn't true about our feelings so we can get beneath them to what is most true. We listen to our feelings in the presence of God so we can discover what is most true. You should write that down. We listen to our feelings in the presence of God so we can discover what is most true. It also helps us to make peace with the warring sides and the warring sides of ourselves. You remember last week we talked about those, Paul said in Ephesians, he said, he said that God has come to make peace with the, with the, to, and to tear down the dividing wall of hostility. Do you remember that? And, and Paul was talking about two peoples, people groups that were at war with each other, but we said last week that that dividing wall of hostility that often lives between two groups of people, that dividing wall often lives inside of us too. And so it is as we tear down that dividing wall of hostility inside us between the two warring sides of ourselves, so when we, when we dismantle that, 
that wall within us, that's the wall, I mean, that allows us to dismantle the walls among us. So Velotis gives us five really good questions to use in this discipline of self-reflection. And I'm going to walk through these. You're going to need to write fast, okay? But, and, and here's what I want to ask you to do. Uh, we're actually going to look at four different ways to, um, to, to, to enter into self-examination. And as we go, maybe one of these ways will ping with you, like sound really familiar, sound like, okay, this is the one I need to start with. Keep that in mind, because at the end of the... Of, the, of this message, we're going to take time to just take one of these ways and dig a little deeper in the prayer time. So five questions to use in the discipline of self-reflection. First, what happened? This is a question we, we ask when feelings rear up in, in response to an identifiable event, and it's important for us to ask what happened because sometimes we're going to feel guilt or shame or anger, and we can't even pinpoint what happened. If nothing happened, that's the li a lie from the enemy of, of your soul. <laughs> Just stirring up empty feelings to see what he can make you do to somebody else. If you can't attach your pain to something, that's the enemy. If you can, then you write down what happened. And the next thing you ask is, what am I, what am I feeling about this? What am I actually feeling? And just let yourself be okay with your feelings. That it's, it's God's job to sort it out, your job to feel it. You're doing this in the presence of Jesus. And then the next question you ask yourself is, what's the story I'm telling myself? Because sometimes we will take the feelings that we feel about something that hurt and we'll let that, those feelings tell ourselves an old story, to pull from an old narrative. I've been rejected one more time. I've been abandoned one more time. I remember years ago, a friend of mine, and this was in another town, another church. I've told, even told this story before. She has too. She called me to her office in the middle of the day for lunch because she was so excited. She wanted to tell me about this man she'd met. He was her, he was her soulmate, and he, she was so excited about this finally happening in her life. And that sounds all well and good, except that she was married to another man. And she was telling me, her, her marriage had not been going all that great, and she was telling me how this was God's provision over her life. And I immediately like, whoa up, friend. I don't see this in the scripture. You're going to have to tell me where this is in the Bible. I don't think this is from God at all. And my response, which was not nearly that gentle, um, had, backed her up. And she really had to ask herself, what's the story I'm telling myself and then what what does the gospel say and if those two things don't fit then somehow I'm off and she did back way up she ended up she ended up leaning into her husband and cutting off her relationship with this other person and she and her husband are married today and she's written a book about the whole experience um, 25 years later happy healthy marriage the last question you ask yourself is, what is the counter-instinctual action needed? What counter-instinctual action is needed? In other words, I am not going to go with my feelings. I'm not going to go out with somebody while I'm married with somebody else. I am going to turn around and get closer to, to the person I'm at odds with. I'm going to talk with them. I'm going I'm to lean in instead of leaning out. What's the thing you really don't want to do that God might be telling you exactly? This is exactly the thing you need to do. Listening to our feelings is not a quick fix. 
It takes time to get beneath the surface. It can be painful, but even if it is, does it help you to hear that you have permission to be in that painful place, even to grieve without having to generate answers? And that if you'll give yourself to that practice, it might change you in the deepest parts of yourself and give you a closer relationship with God. So we examine our feelings, and then we examine our faith. David says, search me and know my heart. Know what I know. This is God talking. Search me and know my heart, Lord, so that you know what I know. This is the prayer for God to examine our faith. It's a way of understanding faith is as relevant as mental and emotional intelligence. Faith is a way of expressing something we recognize as true, but, but cannot describe in reasonable or nat natural ways. Faith is a higher form of knowing. It isn't the honorable mention when nothing else works. It is the gold standard. Faith is a higher way of knowing. The problem with too much contemporary Christianity is our perversion of good faith. We tend toward empty faith, using it almost like a shoulder shrug for things that don't turn out that we, like we want to. Well, I'm miserable, but I guess I'll, I'll still hang on to my faith. Rather than as an orienting point that makes everything else make sense. Do you hear me? So how do we diagnose our own faith? Ask yourself in the presence of God, do I have faith? That's a bold question. Chances are, if you're asking this in the presence of God, you have enough faith to get you there. But that's where you start. God, do I even have faith? Do I have faith for this thing I'm asking you about? Do I have faith for, for, the, for the things in my life that are stirred up inside me? Do I have faith? And how do I use my faith? Am I using it, Lord, in ways that faith are meant to be, is meant to be used, or am I using it in, in uh, immature ways? Empty faith. God, where am I lacking in faith? And how would you have me exercise my faith? What's the thing in my life that I am just not using faith to get through? Where would you have me exercise my faith? And then I would always encourage you to end with this, God, give me more faith. I've told you many times, and, and just about every um, day, I pray, God, plug all the holes that have been poked into my soul by the world and fill me again with faith. And to the person who came to my office last week and said, I need more faith, and I was like, no need more faith you got lots of faith I have to apologize right now <laughs> that's, a, that's an incredibly mature place to begin from so we benefit from so much from an honest examination of our faith from a time of listening to God about the quality of our faith to seek a healthy faith in God so that he isn't our lucky charm but our Lord and Master seems to me that the great moves of God tend to happen in the hands, listen to me, it seems to me that the great moves of God tend to happen in the hands of those who practice a healthy faith. So we examine our faith, so we're constantly moving toward a healthier brand of faith. So we examine our feelings, we examine our faith, and then we examine our failures. 
David prays, see if there's any offensive way in me. This kind of interior examination is how I join the ranks of those who don't just say they believe in the forgiveness of sins, but actually participate in it. So questions that will help me to uh, interpret my failure. First, what have I felt guilty about? We ask that question so we can separate the real guilt from the empty shame and the empty lies. Remember we said, sometimes the enemy's just throwing stuff up against the wall like spaghetti to see what, f- uh, see what sticks. Has, has no basis in reality, but well, here we are carrying guilt for nothing. So what have I felt guilty about? And what have I regretted? And among those things I have regretted, have I, have I uh, repented of this a thousand times and I'm still dragging around the demon of regret? And if that's so, then... I need to go back and ask, why do I not have faith in the cross and uh, resurrection of Jesus to cover those things? Who has hurt me and who have I hurt? And who do I need to forgive? Those are the kinds of questions we work through when we engage in an interior examination of our sin. We go beyond waving our hand over the whole lot of it with a general statement like, God, I've been bad, forgive me. Or worse yet, God, if I've been bad, forgive me. We listen to pinpoint the issues, the actual real life issues that need to be dealt with. And we do it in the language of Jesus, which is confession, not the language of the enemy of our soul, which is denial and deception. It's not easy or pretty, but it's good. You might remember at the beginning of the pandemic, I got very interested in the 12, excuse me, the, 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 the stations of the cross, the 14 stations of the cross. If, you're, if you grew up Catholic, you know these stations. They're, the, they're, they're basically 14 images that help you walk through the suffering and crucifixion of Jesus. And I found them to be so helpful in those early days of the pandemic and, and, and making prayers that connecting, connected the suffering of Christ with the suffering in the world. Praying through the stations of the cross gave me a fresh understanding of the truth that God knows. I remember the day I realized that in the traditional stations of the cross, there are three stumbles, three times on his journey up that hill where he would be crucified, Jesus stumbled. And the, the point of, pointing, of, of having all three stumbles in the 14 stations is so we can begin to feel it, feel the weight of this cross and all it holds and all it represents. This weight is more than just wood. It's, it's everything we've done to make that cross a necessary burden to bear. And Jesus stumbles it somewhere around station number three, and then he stumbles again. And, and then we begin to feel the weight of it as, we, as, we, the, the, as, we, as he gets up again after each one of these stumbles, picks himself up and picks up this cross and, and keeps carrying it with all that it holds. And if we're contemplating well, we're with him in this weight we feel the pain, we taste the sweat and blood, we, we hear the people weeping and also the ones who are jeering, most of whom have no clue why. There's no Rocky Balboa moment in the middle of this Stations of the Cross where Jesus catches his second wind. The scripture never says he one-hands the cross and trots up the hill. No, in fact, the traditional stations have 
a third stumble that's not actually in the scripture, but it's there at the ninth station to, to ask us to feel the full weight of the sin that piles on as we keep demanding our own way, the chronic impatience that is the default setting of humanity, the inability to see life from any other vantage point than our own. That third stumble is also where we feel our own defects, the things we so stubbornly hang on to because we can't take one more change, because we just don't want to change. Amen, all by myself. That's the weight he bore, and it wasn't a game. It wasn't easy. Jesus clearly felt the humanity of that walk up that hill with our cross on his back. Talk about courageous love. There's no power greater than the love of Jesus that compelled him to stand up from every one of those stumbles. Those stumbles were not his stumbles, they are your stumbles. He kept walking, stayed in it for the sake of all our stumbles. That ninth station asks us to see our part in the journey. And then the 10th station and the stations of the cross where this one represents the height of vulnerability as we contemplate them stripping Jesus of his clothes. So he's left totally exposed, totally exposed. And you think Jesus doesn't feel your fear, doesn't feel your shame, your horror at the thought of everybody finding out that you are a fraud? You think he doesn't get what it feels like to be left hanging, literally hanging with no idea of how all this is going to turn out, when it will end, or, or how it will end. My friend, Jesus gets you. He so gets you. That tenth station, Jesus brutalized, stripped, hanging. That is the very image of truth and courage. Sheer strength. Brene Brown says the definition of vulnerability is having the courage to show up when you can't control the outcome. She says vulnerability sounds like truth and feels like courage. Truth and courage aren't always comfortable, but they're never weakness. So when the Bible tells us that love always rejoices in the truth, we ought to always finish that sentence with, and truth takes courage. Love always rejoices in the truth, and truth always takes courage. Because it takes courage to invest in our own faith, to listen to our own feelings, to, share, to stare at our own failures, and not to wallow in them, but so we can stand up again and keep on walking, keep going. It takes courage to stay in the hard conversations and to stay in the work of listening and to keep this journey inward going forward because this is precisely where Jesus finishes the work. Our faith is marked, this is Rich's words, by the interplay of crucifixion and resurrection. What often seems like the end is just preparation for a new beginning. 
So in this spiritual discipline of inner examination, that's what we're doing. We're, 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 we're allowing the crucifixions to happen, trusting that after every crucifixion, in the presence of God, there is a resurrection. Maybe the most courageous thing of all we can do today is to fully own ourselves. The good, the hard, the defects, the questions, the inadequacies, the feelings of inadequacy, all of it. Knowing Jesus carried it for us all the way to the cross and into the resurrection, he keeps finishing us. He keeps finishing us. That's the hope. And so we also do an interior examination of where the hope lives. We examine our future hopes David prays, lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me into your future, your preferred future for my life, God. One of my favorite names for God comes from the very hard-to-hear story of Hagar. I, I bet I mention her a lot more than I think I do. The servant of Sarai, before Sarai's name was changed to Sarah, and before she understood the significance of her own calling. In that story, Hagar has this tragic moment. She's, she's the victim of... Of, uh, of an infertile Sarai's impatience <laughs> with God's call on Abram's life. So in Sarai's impatience to see God get on with it and give them a family, she hands her servant Hagar over to Abram and, and, he gives, and she gives him a child. And after Hagar gives birth, Sarai becomes bitter and eventually she kicks out both Hagar and her child Alone and desolate in the wilderness, no food, no nothing. Hagar, she begins to prepare for both her and her child to die, her son. And out there in that desolation of a place, God appears. He doesn't rescue Hagar from an angry master. He, he, what he does is he arms her with truth about his character. Hagar, an Egyptian slave, becomes the only person in the entire Old Testament to give God a name. We find other names for God in the Old Testament. This is the, they're all given by God. This is the only time that a, that a human gives God a name. Usually it's God who tells us who he is as a way of helping us know who he is for us or what he plans to do through us. But here, Hagar is the name, is the one who names God. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. I have now seen the one who sees me. She says. The Hebrew term is Elroy, E L R O I. It means both powerful and God knows. God knows. There is a name for God that means God knows. Which means that on the other end of a dysfunctional family situation, God stands as the powerful one who knows Hagar, sees Hagar treasures Hagar. Somehow by naming God and by discovering in his character that he sees her, that she's not invisible, that the things on her heart are on his too, somehow that's enough. So Hagar is sent back into her work, back into that home, strengthened by that truth. And that is the hope with interior examination. Not that we will be taken out 
but that we are sent back into the world with hope and the truth that God knows. So the questions that we ask to help interpret our future hopes, what do I want? That song we sang earlier, and I can't keep coming up with this. What is the script line again? Even in my wants, I'll follow you. We sang that line earlier. Even in my wants, I'll follow you. Even in my wants. What do I want? Then what does God see? And what is possible? What are we after when we look inside? I'll tell you what we're after. We're after what God knows to be true, and we're after freedom. We're after freedom. Rich says, the goal of self-examination is freedom. Freedom from destructive thought patterns, freedom from inner messages, freedom from the ways we wrongly perce uh, perceive things. What a beautiful practice this is. So this, this morning, I'm not actually going to ask you to stand up. I'm going to ask you actually just kind of enter into the place of prayer. And as we said earlier, maybe there's one of these. I gave you a lot today. But is there one that pinged you? Your feelings, your, your failures, your future, your faith. It's one of these like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's touching something deep in me, and I, I need to explore more here. And, and maybe kind of it's the thing that you've been ignoring or, or denying for a while. You just don't want to deal with it. I will not deal with my feelings. I will watch more Netflix. I will not deal with my feelings. I will, I will pay more attention to the grass. <laughs> I won't... I won't I won't even confront my lack of faith. I'll just, I'll just keep posting on social media things that make me look more faithful than I am. Or I'll just keep whining. And Lord, I'm just afraid if I even look at my failures, I'm afraid they'll be too big. I might not have faith enough to believe that you will actually right-size all of it and let it find its place on the cross along with everything else. Or it may be, God, I'm just, I'm so enveloped by my failures and my feelings that I can't imagine what the future is. So you take a moment right now and let yourself ask yourself a couple of questions. Let Jesus talk to you. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.